Let us let us pray. Make your ways known to us, Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth. Teach it to us, because you are the God who saves. In you we put our hope all day long. Amen. Well, this is uh, Ask Me Anything Sunday. We do this about three or four times a year, depending on how the calendar works out. It It is on fifth Sundays when that is something we can do. I got a bunch of questions today. I don't know. I have a watch of my own. So I will try to monitor the time, but don't, don't feel bad about saying, hey, you know, something like that if I'm, if I'm taking forever. So, um, a bunch of questions here, uh, and, um, uh, one of them, uh, I found, um, it was submitted a couple of, uh, years ago, and I found it, um, in my email. So, uh, um, I've had some time to think about this one. Um, so, uh, but I didn't look it up or anything. It says, what does the Bible say about setting boundaries to protect yourself? Um, the question went on. I think a lot, I think a, a, a lot of young people struggle with saying no, especially to loved ones. When is it okay to say no? When should we push past our comfort zone to help others? That is a great question because it's hard. Um, and, um, over here, so um, so uh, you can you can imagine that scenario. There's probably people you have trouble saying no to, um, and I would say that there's there's uh, two answers. One of them is the the unpleasant answer. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him bids him to come and die. That Jesus says, uh, "Take up your cross every day and follow me." So so um, if you're finding uh, you're finding yourself stretched maybe too thin. A part of the answer is welcome to Christianity. You know, Jesus didn't get it um, any easier than you did. So, um, and, and in fact, you're getting it easier than he did. So, so, um, so on the one hand, uh, there there is some expectation that that you will sacrifice uh, in order to be like Christ in this life. But there is a, a separate answer, which is um, the way I would I would answer this since. This is two years old, and I'm hoping that the, the particular crisis um, isn't uh, felt as strongly now. So I, I felt more comfortable giving the, the hard answer. But there's another answer, which is that um, if you have your priorities right, that may help you um, sort out what, what the conflicts are. For example, what they tell pastors is um, your first duty is not to your church. They tell them it's to your family, and above that is to Christ. So, so there's this idea of if you're prioritizing correctly, then you aren't the pastor who burns out from from overwork or something. That you 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 know you the pastor who gets divorced or whatever because the fa- the the marriage falls apart. So the idea is that if you have your priorities right, if you if you understand that God has given you a lot of stuff, and if you put your priorities right, then um, then you will not be facing. Um, as much difficulty because it's a lot easier to say I can't do that because I have to do something else that's more important. That's easier than simply saying I can't do that because you're driving me nuts. So, so, um, so that would be my my best answer to the question about boundaries. And so, um, uh, push past your comfort zone to help others, uh, but don't don't um, let them 
defocus you from what is truly important. All right. Let's see. The next question. Will I be able to recognize my family members in heaven? Good question. Um, will you be able to recognize your family members in heaven? Um, that's a that's a good question. Um, and I, I could I could be pedantic and say I'm not sure about heaven. The 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 traditional for for most of the past two thousand years the traditional view of of the afterlife is this that when someone dies they go to be with Jesus and Jesus says on the cross he says this day you will be with me in paradise that's pretty much all that he says on the subject there's he uses a, he talks about um, uh, in the parable of the rich man. And uh, Lazarus, he he uh, talks about how there's a great gulf between um, the two parts of the afterlife. There's the the place that's um, where the rich man goes, and there's the place where um, uh, Lazarus goes, the bosom of Abraham. But the idea is those are both temporary. That Jesus, that they are basically in a good place. Uh, you know, the people that we care about um, are in a good place until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns at the end of this age. The earth will be renewed. Um, there will be a new heaven and new earth, and um, all the things that cause pain and, and suffering will will go away. And so, um, heaven is a temporary is a temporary way station. Yes, our loved ones may be in heaven now, but the idea is that when Jesus returns, He will bring them with Him. So, so uh, I'm going to I'm going to answer the question. I have no idea about heaven. There's just so little about that temporary state in heaven. So I don't know. But let's talk about the bodily resurrection. So um, uh, I'm going to be using the Pew, the Pew Bibles. We don't normally use it um, because of licensing issues um, and streaming and all that fun stuff. But um, uh, but you can find the, the matching verses. So um, so um, since since we can't put it up on the screen, so um, the 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 place I want to look at is. Uh, the 24th chapter of Luke's biography of Jesus, that is on page 90 in the back. So there's two sets of numbers, so 90 in the back. And it's the story of the Easter um, appearances of Jesus. And if if we're looking forward to a bodily resurrection for the people that we care about, um, then... Uh, we might look at the the one bodily resurrection that there's a lot, or comparatively, a lot of information about in the New Testament. And what we see in it is that um, when Jesus um, when Jesus does appear, now in Luke's, Luke doesn't tell us about the early morning appearances of Jesus. He tells us later. He tells us instead about this um, this appearance Jesus has to some people who are going to a village named Emmaus. And says, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with him, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And uh, they have this conversation, and then um, uh, they walk along. They invite him to dinner with him. And so when he's at table with him, verse 30, when he's at table with him, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So Jesus is is different enough that that they are unable to recognize him. There's other places where we see that people have trouble. Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener when in John's uh, story about Easter. So there's different places where 
where people don't quite recognize Jesus in his in his um, resurrected form, but then they do. So then, okay, now I recognize Jesus. Um, same thing here with this. Uh, when they when they see him breaking the bread, they go, "Wait, I I've seen this guy before." And so so um, I would say that that's probably the best the best information we have about uh, what the family members will look like um, in in the the resurrection. Uh, will we be able to recognize them? Um, uh, we will be transformed. The Apostle Paul says we will all be transformed. Um, what was what was sown perishably will be raised imperishable. Um, uh, so we'll be better um, in some way, but there's so little information; it's very difficult to say. Um, here's here's the good news: if you don't recognize them, you have all of eternity to ask everybody and say, "Wait a minute, are you Uncle Fred?" So you know, um, maybe that'll be part of the fun of it. Um, so I, I really don't know. All right. Um, okay. The next question: Are there any references in the Bible about pets going to heaven? Uh, um, none that occur to me. Um, I don't know if they had pets. Um, pets were pets are kind of a luxury thing. Um, most of the animals in that era were probably uh, working animals. Um, I don't know. Uh, there were animals in paradise before the fall, so um, you know. And there's there's passages that speak about the um, the the lion will lie down with the lamb and things like that. So there's at least uh, and are those metaphor? We don't know. Um, you know, we only have the words, and so we can argue over what what the metaphor or what the the sentence actually means. Um, but there's at least the the strong possibility there will be animals in heaven. Uh, whether you get to bring, you know, Fido with you, I don't know. I can't think of any. Does anybody else? Can anybody else think of any passages that would talk about that domesticated um, pets? I can't think of any. I do know there are churches uh, that do a blessing of of your pets. So, um, uh, so there is that. There's a, there's a there's a catchphrase Presbyterians use. I don't know how widespread it is, but it's something I picked up in Presbyterian circles, um, and it's nothing will be lost that can be saved, which which is a great way of saying God's smarter than me about things like this. And so, um, if Fido can be saved, then Fido will not be lost. How's that? Um, okay. What is the? Uh, all right. One easy question. All right. I'll come back to this. Just because it's it's from the same person, so let me let me that'll be the one after this. So, all right, please comment on the parable of the fig tree and the curse. Okay, so what is that? Mark thirteen. It would help. Okay, wait, Mark eleven. All right, so Mark eleven. It's on page forty-eight, and. Um, so I'll give you a second to find it. So we're starting in verse 20. Oh, wait. Oh, I remember this one. Okay. So um, actually, let's back up to page 47 and uh, read verse 12. So it says, On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he would find anything on it. 
When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then there are uh, six or seven verses uh, where Jesus cleanses the temple and he tells the, the, he drives out the money changers and so forth and he wouldn't let people carry anything through the temple. He says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. And then we pick up the story of the fig tree again. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered by its roots, uh, to its roots. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and you do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say, it will come to pass. It will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So there's a teaching there on prayer um, uh, that you that you know our prayers are too uh, unambitious. Um, that that if we if we have greater faith in God, that um, our uh, prayers will be answered. But there's a you know we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We um, Luke's version is not quite the same, but it's pretty similar. Um, you'd have to compare the two to see. Uh, how they differ, but but you notice what what is different is that Mark puts his in the middle of this fig story. So there's a there's a, a literary te- technique. Back in the olden days, they only had handwriting. They didn't have boldface. You couldn't really indent uh, stuff. Um, the uh, the price of a piece of parchment is roughly equivalent to what we would pay for plywood today. So think of you know an equivalent sheet of plywood. You know if you've got a piece of parchment like this. That you know, it was made out of animals and so forth. So it was expensive. Um, so they didn't waste it. They they wrote in the margins and everything. So um, they left margins so that people could come along and write in them. Actually, so how do you how do you signify something is important? You want to say something's important. One of the things you can do to draw attention to it is you can put it in a sandwich, right? So I've got fig tree, fig tree, and then I've got the thing in the middle, and so. Um, the fig tree has its own has its own message, but I would I would encourage you to think about it as as calling attention to the thing in the middle. That if if I wrap the 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 cleansing of the temple in the middle of this fig tree sandwich, it's a way in in the days before boldface and you know indentation and different fonts and so forth. Um, it's a way of saying, hey, look here, pay attention to this thing. I've I've gone to some trouble to point at. So um, it could be that the reason Mark presents the story this way, instead of just saying, and then the next time they saw the tree, it was it was um, it was uh, withered. Instead, Mark wants us to pay close attention because because Jesus says you're doing temple wrong, you're you're doing you're doing this stuff wrong, and so if Jesus is teaching about prayer, and in between he um, he drives out the uh, the um, the buyers and sellers and so forth. He, draw, he drives, uh, turns over the tables and so forth. Um, maybe what, what Mark is trying to do to us is tell us, yeah, take the fig tree story, but, but don't forget what it's wrapped around um, because that's the important thing. Jesus is cleansing the temple. So that's my commentary on the parable of the fig tree and the curse. Okay. And uh, we'll do one more, I think. And thank you for everybody who submitted these. This is great to have a lot. Um, uh, 
Oh, one was on Halloween. So I've already kind of spoken about that a little bit with the children. So um, uh, the right way to do Halloween. All right, so what is the biblical view of capital punishment? The Old Testament seems to allow for it uh, for murders. And in the New Testament, Romans 13.4 talks about the sword often used in executions. So let's go ahead and take a look at Romans 13. Um, oh, what is this? There's another one. Oh, I already did that one. So Romans 13 is page 162 in the back. So, so the little heading that our editors, the people who put the Bible together, um, added these headings to help us find things. So it says, be subject to authorities. And Paul says uh, pretty much that. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that have that exist have been instituted by God. That's the powers that be are ordained of God in the old language, the powers that be. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its authority, its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. So, what you might notice there is that um, the person is not talking about murder. He's talking about um, an execution carried out not by a, a Christian necessarily, but by a um, by the authority, the state. So uh, one of the things that Christians have argued over capital punishment um, for for a long time, I would say in general the trend has been, um, I mean, like for centuries. But I would say the, the the last couple of centuries, the argument has been um, uh, increasingly against capital punishment. And um, one of the problems is that the church found itself in possession of that sword. That um, in in it was easy for Paul to write this in Romans because nobody he knew was was an executor. Nobody had any authority. Christians. Christianity, really, the, the, the New Testament does not envision Christians having any authority. It assumes going in that you are going to be pretty much doing what you're told, either as a slave or as uh, somebody on, on one of the lower rungs of society. You're not the emperor. Uh, it talks about the emperor, and you're not him. So so uh, it was easy for Paul to do that, but when, when Christians became um, in charge of the governments, they started having these arguments. What what do we do about that? And um, the the broad word for it is the magistracy. So what can Christians do to other people? What can I do to force you to do things? In the in the in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, there's this idea of you belong to a community and the community does these things, and people who don't do those things are excluded from the community. Sometimes they are they are banished and sometimes they are cut off, and that means that they are discarded, they're thrown away, so uh, that they're they're killed. So um, the idea is that there was this enforcement of who belonged in the community. But in the New Testament, we we talk about people who are bound to the community only by love, and so there is no idea in the New Testament of Christians 
um, having to do things or else they would be cut off or, or um, uh, executed by the, the community. That's something that where Paul's talking strictly about the state. So, so the, the Christians have struggled now that I am in charge of the state, now that, you know, I get elected president, what do I do about capital punishment? And, uh, the answer is that, um, the, the New Testament does talk about the sword, but, you know, Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, you know, be sure and, and carry a sword. And then when they have a sword with them at the, in the, when he's arrested in the garden, he says, put away your sword. So, the, the New Testament is something that people, if I, if I pick that first verse and just read that, then I'll say, okay, we get to have swords. And if I read the second part alone, then I say, but we shouldn't use a sword. And, you know, I don't get to pick and choose. I have to take the whole thing and say, it's ambiguous, and I don't know how to solve that problem. Um, you know, I, just from looking at the scriptures, there are theologians who have tried to, to, um, to address that. And so you see people talking about the magistracy, you, you see people talking about, um, uh, Warfare as an as a as an example of capital punishment um, carried to the extreme, uh, and what they what they all have in common is you can't you you operating on your own cannot be cannot cannot do that. Jesus is too clear on that. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Jesus says if it's just a question of you getting revenge or something like that, no. The answer is flatly no. There is some ambiguity. What can the state do? The hand that bears the sword does not do so in vain, and there's ambiguity, and and um, uh, that's something where people say, you know, that was barbaric and we shouldn't do it, and there's other people who say no, it's necessary, and I would just say that the Bible, uh, there is no one biblical view of capital punishment. It's something that we are we are called to to uh, to be informed by Scripture, and then to uh, trust the Holy Spirit to show us uh, what to do. Um, including to change our understanding of it. So that would be my answer, and I think we will stop there. So thank you, thank you again for this. This is uh, this is helpful to me. It makes me a better preacher, and so I hope I'm answering some of your questions as well. But um, I'm kind of greedy. I just know it's better for me as a preacher. So thank you. All right.